Welcome to The Disability, a podcast where we have candid discussions about all things related to disability, short-term, long-term, financial claims, impact on other areas of life, causes in the workplace, and more, with your host, Attorney Angel Burgess. You can find this show at www.disabilityhelpline.com and on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Now here's the host of The Disability, Angel Burgess. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Disability. Today, we are honored to have with us for the second time, attorney Anna Mackey from the Bobby Dodd Institute. Welcome again, and thank you so much for coming back to us, Anna. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, we had such an informative discussion um, the last time that you were with us. In fact, we just simply didn't have enough time to cover all the things that we needed to talk about. So I'm so glad that you've come back to us so that we can focus today on the topic of the now comp waivers. So let me first start off um, just making sure that we're all on the same page. Anna, can you please tell us what is a now comp waiver? Sure. When we talk about a now comp waiver, what we're talking about is now, which stands for new options waiver and comp, which means comprehensive. So these are programs through the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities that provide services to primarily adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So uh, often tell folks that when your loved one reaches adulthood, they need three things. They need some form of income, some form of health insurance, and some level of service. And Social Security is going to provide that income and health insurance, but then the services, that's where the Department of Behavioral Health comes in. And the now comp waiver, that's the primo level of services that you can get. Okay. So in terms of who should be thinking about, you know, applying for the now comp waiver and kind of the criteria. Can you go over that with us? Absolutely. So the eligibility criteria is obviously focusing on an individual with an intellectual or developmental disability. But more specifically, when you look at the application process, you need to attach a psychological evaluation to that application. And I need everybody to understand what's in that psyche valve because that's what's going to drive your eligibility. So they're going to look first at cognitive scores and they're going to expect cognitive scores that are below 70. So if you have an individual who has a condition closely related to an intellectual disability like autism and their cognitive score is let's say mid 80s, they're going to look at the adaptive function score. So that adaptive function score needs to be below 70. So when you're applying for a now comp, it's really the level of severity and impact that the individual has experienced from their disabling condition as evidenced by those scores in that psychological evaluation. So I always caution folks, make sure that anything that you submit to the Department of Behavioral Health is going to meet those eligibility criteria. Okay, and so when you talk about cognitive scores, um, my mind automatically went to IQ, um, IQ testing, but it sounds like it's not 
just the IQ testing because you mentioned the adaptive functioning as well. Right. And sometimes we see psychological evaluations that don't quite hit the mark. Well, they'll do a full-scale IQ test, but then they don't do an adaptive function. And so you're just kind of left hanging there. And if, again, if the cognitive score in that evaluation is in the 50s, okay, the adaptive function is going to be implied. But if that case is more borderline, they're going to rely on that adaptive function. And the DBHDD tends to interpret the lack of an adaptive function assessment as this tacit, you're okay, you're doing pretty well. You, you, if the psychologist felt you needed one, they would have done one. So that can become problematic. So because the, these scores are so important, um, I'm sure that there are a lot of families that are, will think or will ask, you know, where do we go to get a psychological evaluation that complies, you know, that meets the requirements um, that they're looking for? Do you have any specific recommendations? Well, look to see what they have, because anybody who has an IEP in school, they had to have been gone through some form of evaluation to determine that they needed services through the school system. So there's likely a psychological evaluation that's been performed through the school. One of the things we want to watch out for is, particularly if we have somebody who's borderline, how old is that document? So, and what, what was used on that document? So for example, if you have an individual who's 17, and you know they're applying for now comp and they're looking at an older evaluation where they used children's scales and their scores were borderline there's a pretty good chance that if they got a new evaluation using adult scales that their scores are going to be within the eligibility criteria but it would be important for the families to not submit that evaluation but rather hold off until they have an evaluation that's going to meet that criteria Okay, so for parents, we're talking about first that your child has an intellectual or developmental disability, mm -hmm. um, that those scores, their cognitive scores, whether that's IQ, um, mm -hmm. uh, adaptive functioning, or hopefully both, mm -hmm. um, are 70 or less. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then are there any other requirements besides those two? Now the application itself is one of the simplest, most straightforward applications I've ever seen. It's literally two pages. Here's the individual's contact information. Here's the parents or preparers contact information. Simple question, does the person have guardianship? Okay. And then what services are you looking for? It's, that's it. It doesn't even ask what your disabling condition is. But then there's the scavenger hunt that goes with that. I call it the scavenger hunt. It's a page of documents that you're supposed to submit with that application, okay. for most of which is that psychological evaluation. So it's a psych eval. Um, some documents you may not have. You know, if you're putting your loved one on the planning list prior to them having Social Security, you're not going to have a copy of your Social Security paperwork. So you just don't include that. Same thing, a minor isn't going to have guardianship paperwork. So you don't include that. But they do want to show lawful presence. So you're going to need to have either a passport or a birth certificate. But what's really the litmus test is that psyche valve. So making sure that that psyche valve is going to pass muster is really important. 
Now, in terms of the services, you mentioned that on the application, it asks you what services um, mm -hmm. you're requesting. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> what services are out there? So you think about what services would an adult living with disabilities need in order to be included and have access to the community? So it, it can range from a whole lot of things. The most common services are community access group, which is their language for a day program. So it's community access as a group. Likewise, you could have community access individual. So let's say that day program is not the right fit for you, but you want to have access into the community for recreational and community events, community access individual would be appropriate. Community living support is a very fundamental service. So that's providing services so that the individual can remain in their home. Um, so that would be assistance with self-care, assistance, preparing a meal, doing laundry, all those things that come with home and living so that the individual is able to stay in their own home and receive those services. In contrast, community residential alternative services, when you're thinking group home or host home, that's what that service is. So it's an alternative to being in your own home. So can any of these services that you just mentioned be requested with the in the application? Sure. You know, I, I generally encourage folks just to be as broad as possible in that, you know, what services do you need? I need all services to help me access the community and live independently. Okay. Doesn't get more broad than that. Right. What's going to happen once they're determined most in need and they're actually awarded a waiver, they go through a series of assessments like a supports intensity scale and a health risk screening tool and a behavioral assessment to identify what services do they most need and then they identify those services work with you to find a provider for those services and develop an um, individual support plan around those services so the most common services that people start off with when their loved one first gets awarded a waiver is usually a day program so that that community access group and some community living support but there's other services too. You know, we have people who want to work. So supported employment is a service. We have people who have behavioral health needs. So behavioral supports can be a service. So there's a number of different services, but it's all boiling down to what does that individual need? All right. Well, that, that sounds good. So once the parent or the family member um, has completed the application, has the supporting documents um, and submits that application, what does the timeline look like? Uh, it depends. Okay. So because there's 7,000 people on the planning list, they have a process of determining who is most in need of those services. And I've seen individuals go from, from zero to hero because something catastrophic happened you know mom suddenly struck with a terminal illness and is in a hospital and there's nobody to provide care that's going to get you straight to the top of of the list we have individuals who are very diligent and they're putting their loved one on the list as soon as possible when they're four years old well okay 
these services are generally geared for adults. So they're going to be on that list for quite some time because they don't need those services at that point in time. You don't need a day program if you're going to school. Right. So it, it depends. Um, I would say that parents need to have a, an understanding of what kinds of services are out there so they can be Instead of, I need a waiver, I need a waiver, it's helpful to say, we need a day program, or, you know, because of my work schedule, I need community living support at least 24 hours a week to cover that time when there's nobody at home because it's not safe for my loved one to be at home alone. So having awareness of the services, I think, is really key, and being able to talk about um your child in terms of their needs versus their strengths and so here i'm coming at it from a mom i'm my loved one my guy my cute guy 29 years old you know if i had a penny for every time you know eric is a delightful child he is a delightful child but me talking about how delightful he is and and all the things he can do it's not going to help me with my advocacy strategy to, to get the services that he needs. So I have to kind of dwell on the fact that these are the things that he can't do and what would happen if he was left home alone. And, you know, we start going down that pathway, we can see the need. And so that's where I need folks to, to really be candid about their loved one's needs and not be afraid to ask. And sometimes that feels like, putting a little bit of dirty laundry out there. You know, there's a lot of domestic violence in the home with the, the, the child on the mom having meltdowns and getting physically aggressive. Um, we need to talk about that and provide services and help the family know, okay, I can go to the Georgia Crisis Access Line, but I need to let my planning list navigator know this because this makes me closer to most in need. I'm going to be more likely to get those services if I talk about all the, the challenges and the needs that we're facing. So the planning list that you've mentioned, is that essentially like you've been approved kind of list? or that they've acknowledged that you need the services. You've been predetermined eligible to receive a nail comp waiver. However, there's no funding available, so you will be on the planning list. Okay. Um, yeah, used to, prior to 2018, DVHDD had like a short-term one, short-term two, short-term three, long-term planning list, and they've done away with that. So you're either on the planning list or you're not. And if you're on the planning list, then you're responsible for showing how your individual is most in need. And there's planning considerations that in include not only the individual's behavior and the, the risks of them being at home alone, but also the medical condition of the parent or the age of the parent. Okay. So they are looking at it uh, really not just the child's needs, but the family's needs. Exactly. And child. Exactly, because the, the goal of these programs is to promote stability within the family. So, and that's why you'll see some frustration with like, we'll never get a waiver because, you know, my husband and I are still married and all the single moms are getting them. It's like, well, maybe one of the reasons you see that skew is because there's less of a safety net. And so again, who's, who's more stable? Who is more unstable and I've had some very um, 
some some parents talk about my my loved one is perfectly capable of doing this they're perfectly capable of doing that well if you're perfectly capable you're in, just talk yourself out of a waiver right. you know it's it's like this is what they need and these are what the challenges are and these are what the risks are so parents need to look at it as a risk management tool I was like, okay, this is where our current situation is, and this is the level of risk that we're facing. And then if we had these services, we would be more stable and in less of a risk situation. Okay, that makes sense. Let's make sure that we get those services to that person. It's based on need. Okay. And I believe I heard you say earlier that the planning list had about 7,000 people on Right, right. And so um, this current year, we had 513 waivers um, budgeted. That's the largest number we've ever had. Um, the legislature is still in session, but it looks like they're going to land on about 500 new waivers for next year, which is fantastic. Um, in the meantime, while you're on the planning list, you should be availing yourself of family support services. So family support services is in that same family of services that's provided through the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. It's a, a lesser level of service, but I would rather have something rather than nothing. And so it also is a good advocacy strategy if you're trying to show that you're most in need to show that you're maximizing all other available resources, because the, the first thing that's going to happen is I really need this waiver and the planning list never get it goes. Well, are you using family support? Well, no, you know, bam, well, the ball's right back firmly in your court. So instead, if you can show, yes, I maximized family support services, I'm on, you know, a, a planning list or a waiting list to try to get services through voc rehab as well. You know, I've maximized everything that we can. We've now aged out of the, the school system, so I have nothing from the Department of Education. You know, here we are. Ooh, that's sounding a lot more most in need. So, yeah. Okay. So with the family support services um, can you give us some examples of of what of sure. expect to receive absolutely so it's it's very similar to the services that you would find under a waiver just at a smaller level so yeah you're not going to have a group home or a host home with family support services but you might get enough funding to go to a day program maybe not five days a week but maybe one day a week or getting some respite or some community living support in the home. So it's not not the full blown amount that you would have with a, a now or a comp waiver, but it's certainly something to, to utilize. And again, part of that advocacy strategy, you show that you're maxing out your family support services, use that to do a gap analysis. It's like, I have this, but here's still all the area that, you know, we don't know what we're going to do and we're at a high risk factor for that helps push your case forward. Okay. And so for this year, you said there were, it looks like there are going to be 500 ish. Yeah. Universe. So that's 500 out of the 7,000. That's, that's the list. Right. I'm hoping that that number will come down. I think, one of the things that's challenging, though, is just at the same time as we are pushing for more waivers to be awarded so that planning list number comes down. Unfortunately, we're also pushing to get more individuals on the planning list who are eligible for these services, but they have no idea that there's such a thing as a now comp waiver out there and they've never applied. So the that number of 7,000, that doesn't represent all the individuals 
who have disabilities who aren't being serviced with waivers already. So what I would expect to see is actually sort of a ballooning of that planning list because we're trying to be more diligent about making sure that everybody is getting on that planning list. Um, and then that gradual working away at that planning list through actual waiver awards. Now, once you're on the planning list, do you ever come off of the planning list? Like, let's say you're, you're still waiting on a waiver. And you, you mentioned earlier the example of having a four-year-old or a very young child. Will that four-year-old stay on the planning list and still be on the planning list when he or she is 18 years old? Generally, you know, un unless this individual has, for whatever reason, improved their adaptive function or their um, cognitive function. And so generally those scores are fairly stable over time. If anything, they, they tend to go down as an individual goes into adulthood because you should be using adult scales. So I typically see scales go down instead of going up. Um, what I would recommend is once you're on the planning list, have the expectation that you should contact that planning list navigator at least once annually. And then as your loved one is starting to prepare that transition out of the school system, you need to be building that relationship with the planning list navigator. I look back when you know, we were advocating for Eric for a waiver, and I know when I would call the planning list navigator, she probably let it ring twice just to take a deep breath before she had to talk to me. <laughs> like, Here she is again. But I also know that she knew my number when it hit her phone. She knew our case. Mm -hmm. And so that made it a lot more likely that our case would be part of her recommendation. This family is most in need. Right. My question is, if your planning list navigator doesn't know who you are, how are they going to put your case forward as someone most in need if they don't know who you are? So part of that process is making sure that you're still on the planning list and that you're reporting to the planning list navigator any changes that are happening. Not just changes like, oh, we moved, which can mean that you move from one region to another. You know, if I have somebody moving from Cobb County into Gwinnett County, we need to switch regions, right? Okay. But also you see individuals get new diagnoses throughout the process. So somebody, I had a fair number of individuals that developed seizure disorders during adolescence. So that's a new disorder or the development of behavioral issues that we went 18 years, like like my guy, we went 18 years, Mr. Happy Camper, and then hmm, developed some behavioral issues. That happens sometimes. So um, being forthright, being proactive about communicating your needs uh, to that planning list navigator, that's going to better position your case to be presented as this, these are, this is a situation that's most in need. Okay. And once you get the waiver do you always have the waiver or do you have to recertify you know at certain points in time? There's, it's not really a recertification process per se i think what happens when you're awarded a waiver and you know again it's been a good 10 years of living the waiver lifestyle for us okay. so it's there are periodically you'll have a new like supports intensity scale you know every few years just to see again what's the level of function and what what do we need um i think the big issue is 
once you've been awarded a waiver and you are identifying those providers, it's up to you to make sure you utilize your waiver. And we've had a couple of situations where the families opted out of using the waiver and then lost the waiver because they're like, we're going to try this and this is private pay, but we think this is going to be a better fit. And so they'll try that, but then they're losing. It's a you use it or lose it mentality, right? So if you, if you have a waiver and you've been awarded X amount of services, the burden is on you to use those services or risk having those services um, lessened or withdrawn. And the services that are awarded with the waiver, are they service specific or is it a dollar amount that you get for X service? Both. Okay. So, so what would happen is let's say you get respite. Okay. So I'm going to get X number of units of respite. So I would know that and respite is an unusual service because it's one unit, but that one unit can cover up to 24 hours. Whereas if you have community living support, you're looking at if I use six hours of my community living support today. So, um, yeah, it's, it's both. It's looking at what that that service is and how frequently are you receiving that service and therefore what that budget looks like as a representation of that. So, um, for example, if you have if you're going to a day program five days a week, it doesn't matter which day program you're going to go to. It's going to all be the same rate, but it's five days a week. That's going to be closer to $19,000 in your budget as compared to, oh, we're going to do CAG two days a week and we're going to do supported employment two days a week. Um, and what you'll also see is because anything that's more one on one, like supported employment or community access individual, is your budget for those are a little lower because it's a one on one. Okay. Yeah. So it, it, it takes some financial management to figure out what what all the services that we have and what does that look like? And then you have that choice of am I going to go to an agency to help me manage this or am I going to self-direct? Am I going to participate direct these services? And the the upshot of being participant directed is you get to cut out the middleman. So you have more control over that budget. And so it's like, oh, I'm choosing to hire this individual at this rate, and I'm going to do it in such a way that I can have that service for the full year. Wow, okay. So the, there's just so much <laughs> to know about these waivers. It's it, a lot, it is, it's, it's a lot. A lot. So we, we try to first help individuals Number one, let's make sure you're eligible and get on that planning list. Okay. Number two, we want you to understand what that process looks like so that you can understand how to advocate to show that you're most in need and that you um, should have this waiver so that you get access to the services. And so um, in our earlier discussion, we talked about this level of need assessment that we have at BDI that helps me demonstrate the severity and impact for purposes of social security. That same assessment helps demonstrate what level of supports they need so we can identify what services and at what level. 
So then again, your ask is more specific. I need 30 hours of community access group and 20 hours of community living support and 15 units of respite. Okay, that's a really specific ask. Um, and so then once you've been awarded, then you go through that process. And again, you're gonna go from a planning list navigator, baton passes to a planning list administrator who's gonna guide you through that process. Okay. And so you're like, you have to pick a support coordinating agency. Then you need to pick a fiscal agent. And then you look at what services that you're going to receive after you've gone through those other assessments that supports intensity scale and everything that's going to help drive what services that you're receiving. And then you're going to work with your support coordinator to find providers for those services. And then you develop your plan. And then once you've got that plan, you know, okay, then we do the data collection throughout the year to make sure that you're meeting goals, making progress on those goals towards that plan. And um, those birthdays just keep rolling around, you know, and, and then it's like, okay, here's the new year. What's changed? Has anything changed? Do we need any new services? Are we at the, the right level of services? And the irony is as hard as it is to get a waiver to begin with and get awarded that waiver, once you have a waiver, it's fairly easy to get services added or modified because it's this constant annual review of what's working, what could be working better, what do we need to make sure that, again, we're doing what we can to promote inclusion in the community. Wonderful. So it sounds like there is a, a good amount of support that's available to families once you have the waiver. Um, but the key is, number one, knowing that the waiver exists right. Right? and um, having a good understanding, you know, as a parent of what needs to be done in order to get the waiver. And that's where you come into the picture. Right. right. OK. Right. So, so tell, yeah. tell our listeners, um, you know, if you're a parent or a family member of someone that has intellectual or developmental uh, disabilities, what should they do and when? They should get on the planning list as early as possible. So let's say you've been diagnosed. Your first order of business is babies can't wait. So you age out of babies can't wait into family support services. And so when you're in family support services, you should also get on the planning list. Okay. So everybody who's on the planning list should have family support services and everybody who's on family support services should also be on the planning list. And at what point in that can they contact you for questions, guidance, support? No earlier than age three. Okay. So the, the family support services program begins at age three. And so the, the work that I do, is usually my wheelhouse is more transitioning adults. Mm -hmm. uh, I will check in with families and I have members on my team for, for children to help access things like Katie Beckett deeming waiver to access Medicaid. But what we're really foremost looking at is do they have family support services? That's your lowest hanging fruit um, as, as a child and going in through adulthood until you're awarded a waiver. Excellent. Well, I know that, um, at least in my personal experience, and this has been so helpful for me today, Anna, because, mm -hmm. you know, I knew 
very little <laughs> about now comp waivers. Um, and so I can say that from my personal experience and working with families of transitioning um, adults that the vast majority of them do not know anything about the now comp waivers. Mm -hmm. And now I see that it is urgent <laughs> that they need to know right. uh, this is a, a resource that they're not utilizing. Exactly. And I, I think especially as you get outside of Metro Atlanta, you have very little knowledge of things like now comp waivers and family support services. There's a lot of a lot of little golden nuggets and jewels out there that they haven't found yet. And so part of our mission is to expand my program statewide so that we can provide presentations to families to help them access these services because they're they're transformative. You know, my guy, he's 29. He lives the best life. You know, he has all his bowling leagues and his Special Olympics and all his peer groups and good times. And everybody should have that. Everybody should have that. It shouldn't be like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Everybody should have access to that. So making sure that we're equipping families with first that knowledge of everything that's out there and then giving them the tools to access that. Um, it's very important. Well, Anna, thank you so much um, for coming back to talk with us Ooh. and to, to talk with us about these now comp waivers. Um, how can our viewers and or listeners contact you, um, particularly those with those transitioning uh, young adults? How can they contact you? Um, the e yes, the easiest way to get me is via my email. It's my first name dot last name anna a n n a dot mackie m a k i at bobby dot dot org and i have some some stock emails that i can send you like if you have uh, an individual like oh i just heard about this now comp planning list how do i how do i get on there where's the application i can send that to you so yeah and yeah, maybe we can check to see if you're eligible for uh, family support in, in our region as well, and also gives me the opportunity to just double check that psyche valve to make sure that you're going to be successful. I really want to make sure people have all their ducks in a row before they apply. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today, Anna Mackey. Um, and this has been another very informative <laughs> episode of the Disability. We look forward to talking with you all next time. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Disability with Angel Burgess. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. You can catch prior episodes at www.disabilityhelpline.com and on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more.